So, um, our passage today, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, the next passage in our series of studies from the book of Galatians, starts with what looks like a fairly provocative insult. You stupid or foolish Galatians. That's, that's the opening gambit, that's the opening statement from, from chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. Foolish. Stupid. You know, we should never underestimate the human capacity for stupidity. Uh, there's a story about two truck drivers who stopped before a low bridge with their 18-wheeler truck and they're trying to decide if they could go under it. And the driver pointed out that they needed a clearance of four and a half metres. Um, but the bridge, it said, only had a clearance of four metres. But um, his, um, his colleague, his uh, co-driver, had an even more astute observation. There were no cops around, so let's go for it. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it didn't turn out um, so well. The only thing that is more stupid than that for us as Christians is to try to finish the Christian life in our own strength. At least that's what Paul was trying to tell the Galatians in the passage that we're going to look at today. Now there's quite a lot in this uh, little passage. It's only uh, nine verses, so we'll read them now. So Galatians chapter 3 and starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have, have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. For those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I think I would describe the first few verses of this chapter as basically an emotional outburst. Um, Paul asks a string of obvious rhetorical questions to underpin what he said in verse 1, that, that he then repeated in verse 3, they were fools. And you, you might notice, um, if you compare with chapter 1, there is a slight change in Paul's tone here. Because in chapter 1, he seems, to me at least, to be laying the blame more at the feet of those who had thrown them into confusion. Blaming more the false teachers who had led them astray. But here in chapter 3, he seems to be laying the blame more at the feet of the Galatians. For being stupid, for being gullible, for believing something when they ought to have known better. Three little points just want to take from this starting part of the chapter. Uh, number one, sometimes it's okay to have a righteous anger. 
Um, just as the Lord Jesus did when he overturned the tables of the traders in the temple. And that's not to say that we should be angry people or be constantly pointing the finger of blame at, at, at other people. But I think there is room for us to be passionate uh, about the things which really matter. It's, it's okay sometimes to express frustration and annoyance and maybe even anger when things are not done as they ought to be done. Um, so that's just the first point. Um, second point comes from the word bewitched uh, in verse 1. I don't think Paul was suggesting that anyone had actually deceived them with magic spells, but the magic arts um, were quite common, so the Galatians would understand the point that he was making, that they were acting as if someone had put a spell on them. It was so ridiculous and out of character and defying logic what they were doing. It was as if someone had put a spell on them and they would have got that point. And we still see shades of that in Christian churches today. People who have become enchanted, which is another definition of the word bewitched, enchanted with the latest idea or experience. Um, everything from the historic, uh, hysterical laughter of, of um, phenomenon like the Toronto Blessing. I mean, that's going back many, many years now. But that kind of thing, um, people being slain and hysterical laughter, that's still, you know, that's still prevalent. It's still out there in Christian churches. Um, so from things like that to the extremes of the charismatic movements um, to, the, uh, to the prosperity gospel, these are all different um, slants on Christianity that offer experiences and often novelty which attracts people, delights people, enchants um, people um, into, into following them. So we need to be careful about that, that we're not just being enticed into the latest experience. And, and the third point is just based on this thing I said about Paul laying the blame for this foolishness at the feet of the Galatians. And the point I'd just like to make here is that we each have a responsibility for our own spiritual health, um, for our own engagement in service, for identifying our own spiritual gifts. It's easy to blame others or say that it's somebody else's job. You know, I don't know what my spiritual gift is because someone hasn't told me yet. You know, you, know, you, 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 can, you can... We've probably heard that maybe or maybe even said it. Um, or thought it, um, it's easy to blame others for where we are, um, to blame the bad influence that somebody else had on us, or the lack of encouragement that we didn't receive, or, or even uh, lack of inspiring leadership, I've heard it said. Um, but Paul didn't let the Galatians make any such excuses, did he? Like I said, he made it clear that they should have known better when it came to this error that they'd allowed into their service and doctrine. Now in verse six, Paul starts to set out a number of arguments uh, to show why they were wrong. Arguments which focus on the relationship between Abraham um, and the promise made to Abraham and the, and the Old Testament law. I'm not gonna look at those in a lot of detail today because they do stretch beyond today's passage, and I don't want to overlap with what Steve, um, I think, will um, probably be talking about 
um, next week. But I will touch on it, just the, that bit in verses 6 to 9, because it does support what we have in the preceding verses, um, even though it's not essential, and I'll explain why it's not essential in a, in a few minutes. But the key verse to this introduction, introdu- introduction to um, the doctrine um, that Paul starts to talk about is, is, is verse 6. And he's saying very clearly that Abraham was saved by faith, and not by works. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quotation from, Gen- a quotation from Genesis 15 uh, verse 6 and, uh, and he quotes it again in, in, in Romans chapter 4. What we have then in the following verses is a reminder that this wasn't something that just applied to Abraham And it wasn't something that applied just to the Jews, even though the Jews thought that they were the only people entitled to call themselves the children of Abraham. It was something which Paul quotes, and we find in multiple places in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 28. The fact that the gospel to the Gentiles had been announced all the way back then, it wasn't a new thing. It hadn't come through some special revelation, although the revelations to Paul and to to Peter were were, were kind of a reminder of what they should have already known. That it was always intended that the gospel be to all people and to all nations. That the whole world would would be blessed by, through Abraham. And the specific blessing that he's talking about is the opportunity to be justified, to be counted righteous as a result of faith and not by obeying the countless regulations of the law. It's interesting that that gospel um, of salvation by grace and not by works was announced through Abraham before the law had even been given. It's as if God was saying, you know, Something is coming, I'm going, I'm going to give you something, and you're never going to be able to do it, but don't worry, because after that, there will be something far better, a far better covenant. The basic fundamental truth um, is repeated throughout the New Testament, salvation by grace and, and, and um, not by works. And it's, it's right at the heart of the conflict that Paul was writing to the Galatians about. Two contradictory approaches to Christianity. One which relied on faith and one which relied on keeping the rules and regulations of the, um, of the Jewish traditions. Or as Paul puts it in verse 2, the works of the law versus believing what you heard. The reason I said earlier that I think Paul's um, starting to talk about this doctrine was more supportive rather than essential to the argument that he was making is because he chooses to start by reminding them of what they had experienced, not by taking them back to what they could read in an old manuscript. Verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now clearly there was no doubt about whether or not they had received the Spirit. The question was how. 
Likewise, in verse 5, he, he asks almost the same question. Does God give his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you've heard? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because the answer was obvious. They all knew that the Holy Spirit was working in their lives. It was evident. They knew that miracles were being done in their churches. It was evident and they knew it hadn't come by them in any way earning it through um, keeping the Jewish law. So why on earth should they think that they needed to start obeying the law now? Or as he says in verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Maybe one reason they went down that path was because obeying the law is something that often seems to be easier. Um, it sometimes makes, makes sense because we struggle to varying degrees to accept the grace of God because we feel like we need to do something ourselves. Um, like Naaman in um, 2 Kings chapter 5. We feel a need to do something ourselves. And whilst in some situations in life that's a, that's a good thing, when we want to make a contribution, you know, thanks for the invitation to dinner, can I bring something? Nothing wrong with, nothing wrong with doing that. But we can't say that when it comes to our salvation, can we? Why? Because it is a denial of the value of the crucifixion, of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It's a rejection of the grace of God, an attempt to turn his gift into wages. It's a form of pride. And it is a rejection and a corruption of the true gospel. So no wonder Paul, I think, was, was angry. And all this dressed up, it seems, as a call to greater devotion. I mean, surely rules and regulations are a good way to keep us on the straight and narrow. Surely they allow us to show our devotion to God um, in, in a better way. No way, says Paul. No way. So if not by following religious rules, how can we experience more of God's presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day -day lives. If it's not by following rules and regulations, how can we have a closer relationship with the Lord? And where do daily disciplines, like Bible reading and prayer, where do they fit into it all? And what about James? Didn't James say that actually Abraham was saved by faith along with his works? So there's a couple of just uh, little anomalies maybe that we just need to, um, we just need to, to talk about. Uh, what can we take from this passage to help us to grow spiritually? So that's the main thrust of what I want to share with you today. The first thing we should do is to ensure that we never lose our focus on the cross of Christ. It's only a brief mention in this chapter, but Paul's already referred to it in chapters 1 and 2. Um, and then we get it in verse 1 of this chapter um, when he said that before your very eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'm not going to get into the, 
the different thoughts about precisely what he meant there, but the, the point is that he's referring to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus again. And as Paul said on another occasion, he preached, we preach Christ crucified. So the cross of Christ is hugely important, isn't it, to all of us. Not only is it the ultimate demonstration of the holiness of God and the ultimate demonstration of the consequences of sin and the love of God, but it's also the means by which you and I um, came to be forgiven of our sins, isn't it? And forgiveness is absolutely vital, isn't it? It's crucial for us, uh, the forgiveness of our sins, for us to have any kind of relationship with God or to even come remotely close to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins. Now, clearly, our worship service this morning, breaking bread and taking the wine, that's a great opportunity that we have every week, isn't it, to focus our thoughts on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And, of course, you won't be surprised if I say that meditating on the cross shouldn't be a once-a-week experience. Uh, we should try and bring our thoughts to it in some way or other. Every time we're, we're thinking about, about God and what he's done for us and what he wants for us, because the cross is just so, is so crucial. But, but linked to that... When we realise how important the forgiveness of our sins is, remember, that's really right at the heart of the cross. You know, demonstrating the love of God is absolutely what we see there, but the, but the reason for the cross is so God could forgive our sins. Our sins are that much of an issue. They are, they're, 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 they are the ultimate and unclimbable barrier between us and God if it weren't for the cross. So sin is a, a terrible, terrible thing, even though it's minimised in the world today and people sort of treat it as just being, well, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Um, the forgiveness of sins is critical to our relationship with God. Even though they were fully atoned for at the cross, we should understand that there is a need to confess our sins on a day-to-day -day basis. Why? Because Jesus taught his disciples, if no, for no other reason, to pray on a daily basis... Um, forgive us our sins. We know it's a daily basis because the beginning of that prayer has very much got a daily context, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. It's a, it's a, a prayer which in some form or other should be part of our daily prayers and it includes <coughs> forgive us our sins. 1 John 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now this isn't about our position in Christ, isn't it? It's not about our justification. It's about our day-to-day -day relationship with God, where sin can still be a barrier. In other words, we can never use our, we can never lose our union with God through the Holy Spirit, but we can lose our communion with Him if there is unconfessed or continued sin in our day-to-day -day lives. And the more that we acknowledge our sin, um, which we are doing, we can't, we can't come to God and ask for forgiveness for sins and, and pray that in a meaningful way without, yeah, and be in denial that we're committing sins. So the more we acknowledge our sins and the more we recognize the seriousness of sin and the more we present ourselves to God as wanting and willing to change and take a different path, then the closer our communion with God will be. 
So that's my, my, key, my, 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 my first point. Um, anchored in the cross of Christ and everything that he did there, but to recognise the importance of forgiveness in our day-to-day lives and to recognise the importance of coming to God on a regular basis, confessing our sins and asking for help to um, overcome them. The second thing that I want to talk about that will help us to grow spiritually is to remember the way that we accepted God's gift in the first place, Um, which was, as Paul mentions in verse 2, by believing what you heard, or more literally, by the hearing of faith. I don't know, maybe some of the older versions might have it, um, have that translation. It can also be translated as the hearing which calls for faith. The point here is that we got saved by hearing and responding to the word of God, didn't we? And therefore, God's word needs to be a priority in our lives. It's the main way that God speaks to us, isn't it? In Romans 10 and 14, Paul is making a wider point about the value of preaching um, and, and, and the, the, the value of therefore listening to the message uh, which is preached. But we can also apply it to our own personal reading. He says, how can we believe in the one of whom we have not heard? The more we hear about God, what he's done for us, what he's given to us, what he wants from us, the more we hear that um, as we read our Bibles, as much as hearing it preached to us, the more it will affect our lives. As long as we hear it with faith. And as we know, Hebrews 4 and 12 says, the word of God is alive and active. It is powerful. So when you and I open our Bibles in our own personal readings, if we can develop the habit of trying to read and hear it with faith, we can allow the living and active word of God change our lives, which underlines the importance of doing that reading and listening to ministry. I, I think it's, I like to put the importance, we make a big thing about how important it is to go to conferences and come to YPMs and listen to people like me prattling on from the front. But actually, we have the opportunity in our everyday lives, don't we, to hear God speaking to us by opening our Bibles. Now, it is possible to read the Bible in different ways. It's, it's got history, it's got poetry, it's got romance, it's got sound bites of wisdom. Uh, It's got some great stories. Um, And it's also got a lot of things which are very difficult to understand, isn't it? Which academics love to get their their, their teeth into. And I'm not not one of them. Um, But I'm not saying that those of us who don't love studying um, almost as a hobby, um, that we shouldn't try to go deeper. We shouldn't try to probe deeper. Because there are treasures to be found if we go deeper than just reading the Bible superficially um, as it were there are treasures to be found but regardless of how we read the bibles uh, our bibles and, and whenever we read it should always be with the aim of getting to know god better and putting into practice the things that he wants us to do um, and not do you know the bible is so much more than an instruction manual uh, we know that um, But I think instruction manual, the thought of an instruction manual really is probably the most 
the best illustration of how we, should, how we should try and read the Bible. You know, if you get a new appliance, a new washing machine or a new phone or you know, whatever, um, I mean, there are people out there, I think my father-in-law is a bit like this, who will just push all the buttons and things. I'm an engineer, I can work it out for myself. But, but the rest of us will get the instruction manual, won't we? But we won't read the instruction manual just for a bit of light reading and then just put it down. And then, but we, you know, we'll, we'll, lead, we'll read a bit on how to change the display so we can actually read it without our glasses. And then you'll go on and change the settings. So we read and then we apply. That's how we should read our Bible, shouldn't we? We should read and be looking for things and asking God to show us things that we can apply in our day-to-day lives. And when we allow the hearing of faith to drive our lives like that, affecting our home lives, our working lives, um, the activities we engage in as a church, that's how we get to experience more of the presence of God. That's how the Holy Spirit will be more evident, manifest in our day-to-day lives when we're reading Uh, God's word, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us and with a willingness on our parts, with faith, to put it into practice. There can be one problem with all of that though, Um, and that problem is right at the heart of what Paul is writing uh, um, about, because it's very easy to make the way that we do church and the disciplines which can help us, um, like reading and prayer, it is possible to turn them into another list of rules and regulations. Examples. We teach the children to sing, read your Bible, pray every day. You heard that one, haven't you? We used to sing that when I was little and we still sing it now. Um, and it's, uh, it's good advice, isn't it? Not just for the children, but for all of us. Read your Bible, pray every day. But we need to guard against making our Bible reading and prayer just something that we tick off each day. Doesn't matter how I live my life today, I've done my Bible reading, I've, done, I've read the passage, the next one in the list, and I've done my prayer, and now I can just forget about that and move on. You recognise this, don't you? How often have you read your daily reading, if you're following a daily reading plan, and ten minutes later you can't even remember what it was you read? You know, we, 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 we do this, we can do this, and likewise with... Uh, with prayer, so we need to be careful. Um, another thing as a child, I remember being told, and this is a, almost a silly example, but I'm going to use it because it, it, it it's true. I was told which words are allowed and which words are not allowed. For example, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, I was taught that the word bloody is not allowed because it's a swear word. But the word blooming is okay. Okay? Also, another, and I'm going to call this a debate, it wasn't a debate, it was ridiculous. I remember in the church in Liverpool where I grew up as a Christian, there was a whole thing going on about clothing, whether men should wear a tie for the remembrance. It was disrespectful to the Lord not to wear a tie. And women shouldn't wear trousers because that's men's apparel and there's a verse somewhere that says that that's not allowed. You see the, the, the point I'm making? We can, with good intention and sincere hearts, we can find ourselves obsessing over rules and regulations. And naturally, the meetings of a church are prone to rules. When and where they take place, the meetings. Who is expected to attend? Where we sit? Whether there is an obligatory opening prayer? Uh, which part of the hymn book we should use, whether or not we should have musical instruments, who does what, and so on and so on. 
And there may be good reasons for some of this. I mean, we certainly have a steer in scripture on some of it, and some of it just makes good practical sense. But we need to ensure that we focus, um, that we don't focus on the way that we do things as an end in itself. Yes, gatherings of the church should be organised and done in an appropriate way. And yes, daily disciplines like Bible reading and prayer are a very good way to make sure that we do the things that we might otherwise forget. But it's not the doing that makes a difference to our spiritual growth. It's our attitude to how we do them. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 verse 2, These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. If you ever read God's word and trembled, it's uh, certainly in my experience, it's not an everyday experience. Uh, but when we read God's word and realise the holy almighty God is talking to us, there should be that sense of, of trembling. And likewise, when we speak to him in prayer, and likewise, when we come together as a, as a church, yes, as I say, there are things, there are rules, self-imposed rules that we've, we've allowed ourselves um, to help ourselves to do things in, a, in, in, in an orderly um, way. But those rules and regulations are not an end in themselves. Now, let's just quickly finish by um, checking that James isn't contradicting all of that. Um, James wrote about Abraham and the importance of works. I'm just going to quote just a little bit from James chapter 2. Actually, for the whole sake of time, I'm just going to read a couple of the verses, but the whole passage from verse 14 of chapter 2 is a great reminder about the importance of works. But, um, but, but it's very much put in context. Um, James starts off a bit, like, um, a bit like Paul, actually. He says, You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Uh-oh, what's that saying? Let's be clear, and if you read the whole of the passage, the earlier part as well, you, 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 get, you get more of a sense of, 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 of the truth of what James is saying. He is not saying that we're saved by good works. And he's certainly not saying that the good works that he's talking about have anything to do with compliance with the Old Testament law. Like Paul, he's saying that we are saved by faith as long as that faith is genuine. And using Abraham as an example, he's simply highlighting that the evidence of genuine faith can be seen in the things that we do and, 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 and don't do. That's all I'm going to say about James, because that's not the passage we're meant to be looking at um, today. Let me just summarise what I've tried to get over today. Um, We've seen Paul defending the true gospel, salvation by grace through faith and not by works, defending it against a false gospel that they were being deceived by or even, even seduced by. 
And, and I say seduced because, as I've um, tried to outline, sometimes, for various reasons, we find rules and regulations um, attractive, safe, convenient, even easier than what God really wants, which is genuine faith and a close relationship. From verse 6 onwards, Paul is making a doctrinal argument based on the Old Testament. And as I say, we'll, I think we'll hear more about that next week. But in the first part of the chapter, he was appealing to what they'd already experienced. They'd already experienced the Holy Spirit working among them. And he wanted to remind them um, of that. And we all have experiences. Your experience is different from my experience. We all have experiences stretching back over, over many years. And although we need to be careful about reading too much into a single experience, Paul's not talking about a single experience here, is he? He's talking about their ongoing, daily experience of following the Lord. And in, and in their experience, that included miracles being performed among them as the early church was being established. They had experiences. We have experiences, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But the bad experiences don't... What, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, negate or um, countermand the, um, the good experiences. All of our experiences can help us in our, our spiritual growth. In fact, in verse 4 where it says, have you experienced so much in vain? Um, the alternative translation, you might have this in your Bible, for experience there is the word suffered. Have you suffered um, so much in vain? And that reminds us that our close relationship with the Lord uh, can sometimes benefit from hard times, from things that we might call suffering. Um, hardships, bereavement, illness, persecution. Many people who've gone through experiences like that, and maybe it includes you, yourselves, have been able to testify that they have felt closer to the Lord um, as a result of those difficult experiences. And that's it. That's um, pretty much all I want to say. The Galatians knew all this already. I'm sure you knew it all already as well. And they, the, the, the Galatians knew that the Holy Spirit was with them. They knew the experience of the, daily, of the Holy Spirit in their, in their daily lives. But somehow they'd just fallen into the idea that if they just did this or that, or if they just obeyed a few rules, or if they just compromised for the sake of church unity, you know, do what these false teachers were, um, were saying, that somehow God would be pleased with all of that and that they would be even more secure in their salvation. And Paul says, you foolish Galatians. With the benefit of the whole of this letter to read, and the whole of the New Testament at our disposal, uh, we wouldn't expect to make the same mistake, would we, as the Galatians? But, as I said at the beginning, we should never underestimate the human capacity for stupidity and foolishness. Let's pray.